So as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves in the last uh, days of Jesus' life. We're midway through, roughly midway through the, um, the last week of his life, the Passion Week. He's in the temple. The, the crowds have ushered him in, singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, what we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. And the crowds are just wildly uh, crazy about Jesus right now. The, the common people who's not so crazy about Jesus are the religious leaders and the political leaders. And he's been a challenge to them. He's been a thorn in, in their side all along. Uh, and, and they have envied him. And the more popular he gets with the people, the more envious uh, they become. They have even already began to plot to kill him. So in the temple, it's the Passover week. Um, the lambs are being scrutinized for blemishes, for sacrifice. And so it's, it's, many would say that as Jesus comes in, as that lamb... Uh, the Lamb of God, he too is being scrutinized. So we're going to look at three uh, interactions between Jesus and some of the religious and political leaders in the temple. He's, Jesus has gone into the temple each day, and he's teaching. And he's there, and people are coming to him. And so uh, during that teaching time, they are coming not to learn from him, but to scrutinize him, to try to catch him to try to trick him because they can't grab him and put him and, and kill him right there in front of everybody because everybody loves him at this point. Everybody's still in favor of him, at least the common people. So they have to try to entangle him in his words. They have to try to get him to say something that's going to make the people not like him. Now, many of you have been watching the presidential debates. So you understand this. You know, how can I, it's not about what's true or what's right. It's about how can I you know, sling mud at that person, or how can I get them to say something that then I can nail them for it? And that's what Jesus is going through. He's not, there's no debate going on. They're just questioning him, and he is giving the most amazing answers. I mean, I I love to hear how Jesus answers questions, because we get questions all the time. So verse 13 begins with question about taxes. You know, (laughs) anytime there's discussion of leadership, there's going to be questions about taxes. So Verse 13 says, Then they sent to him, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. The word to catch, by the way, is, is really the word that means to hunt. Or to, to hunt by trapping. And the bait is this question about taxes. Now, who are the Pharisees? We've met them all along. The Pharisees are religious leaders. The word Pharisee means separated These are the guys that really stick close to keeping themselves separate from the culture of of Greece and Rome and keeping themselves to the the letter of the law, the rituals. These were the spiritual leaders of their their day. If you would think of maybe in the Catholic Church, you'd think of the Pope and the archbishops, you know, how they have all the clothes. And that's sort of what they would have been like in terms of their appearance and and, uh, their role. Uh, The Herodians are uh, a political party, not a spiritual group. They're a political party. They're a group of people that believe that Herod uh, should be overseeing or that that those supporting Herod should be in power over Judea. Now, just a little teeny smattering of history for you. The Romans had ruled in Judea, this area of common-day Israel. The Romans had ruled there since about 63 B.C. And I think it was about 37, the Romans installed Herod, the, the first Herod, as the sort of the king or the overseer of Judea. Now, Herod, the high priest, would normally be 
appointed by the Jews. He'd be someone from the, the tribe of Levi, and the Jews would have say in that. But the Romans took that away from the Jews, and they appointed who they wanted, someone who was friendly with Rome. So the Herodians are a political party that's very much in, in cahoots with the Romans. There was a relationship there. So normally the Pharisees and the Herodians would hate each other. But Jesus brings un- uncommon people together against him. It's interesting to see how that happens. So these, and they don't come, if you think, I think it's in Matthew. Matthew says it's actually the young disciples of the Herodians and the Pharisees that come. And they come, why? To learn the truth, to hear the good things Jesus has to say. Is that why they're coming? They came to, to hunt him. And, and Matthew says, I think, to entangle him in his words. So when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, or that you speak truthfully, and you care about no one. Now, they don't mean he doesn't care about anybody. We know Jesus cares about people. What they're saying to him is, we believe, Jesus, that you're going to say the truth no matter what. You're not influenced by a political party. You're not influenced by uh, allegiance to one group or another. And I think there's some good wisdom. Now, they're, they're buttering him up. How many of you realize they're flattering him? Because each of them thinks they're right. You know, they think they've got him. They think they've trapped him. And so they're sort of buttering him up. You know, hey, Jesus, we believe. We know you. We know you're always going to tell the truth. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. <clears throat> Can I just say one thing on that before we go on? This is an election year. And I, I don't know where you are politically. But I think what's said about Jesus here ought to be said about us. Are we going to align ourselves with Republican? Or align ourselves with Democrat? Or align ourselves with Jesus and His Word? That, I mean, I, I don't know where, where you vote or how. You've got to figure that out yourself. You've got to figure out how you vote and what you base your vote on. And, but before all of that, because that can be really polarizing. That's what they're trying to do here. They're trying to polarize Jesus toward one group. Because when you polarize yourself toward one group, you polarize yourself against the other. Now, I'm very careful, personally. I don't tell anybody how I vote. And there's a reason. Because I think people that are of both political parties need to get saved. And if I polarize myself against the person, then I might not have an opportunity to share with them what's more important than that, and that's the Word of God. And so, whether, you know, whatever one group thinks, another group thinks, the question is, are you willing to say, or could it be said about you what's said about Jesus? Teacher, we know you're true. You speak the truth, and you don't care about Democrat, Republican. You're going to say what the Bible says. You're going to say what God thinks. Not what this group teaches or that group teaches. So I think there's a little bit of lesson, a little something to think about in there. And so they ask him the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, they knew it was, it was a tax levied on them. They knew they were supposed to pay taxes. They're not asking, are we supposed to? Like, we're confused about this. They're asking him, to, to, should we do it or should we not? Now, the tax that they're talking about, you know, any, everybody hates taxes. None of us like taxes. You know, and tax season will be here soon, and we all complain around tax season because we feel the government gets too much or, or whatever. But for them, taxes were especially hard. Remember Matthew, Levi, who became a disciple? He was a tax collector, and the people hated tax collectors because they were abusive. 
They would take more than was, was due them. The, the, the rule of the governors of Rome in Judea was to collect taxes from the people and deliver them to the government of Rome, who was overseeing that area. And they would not uh, always take what was right. They would take more. And if you took extra as a tax collector, you got, Rome would ask you for a certain part, and whatever extra you took, you got to keep yourself. So they were wildly abusive in their collection of taxes. But this tax, and it says, is it lawful to pay taxes? Some of your Bibles might say to give tribute. The word pay is the word to give. And taxes is the word for tribute, which is a once a year valuation tax that reminds you that, that Rome owns you. And it was scathing to the uh, Jews. They hated it. And many times they rebelled against it and refused to pay it. And it was always an area of contention because it reminded them that Rome was over there, was, had authority over them. And they did not like that. Furthermore, the, the coins, they didn't use Jewish coins. They, they had to pay the tribute in Roman coins, a denarius, which had the picture of the emperor on one side and a, some inscriptions on the other. So to the Jews, especially to the Pharisees, that was idolatry. So the question is, okay, Jesus, we got gotcha. you. Do we pay taxes or, we not, or do we not pay taxes? Now, why is this such a, a conundrum for Jesus? Because if he says, yes, pay your taxes. Well, you know, the people are going to hate him for that. Well, you know, he's against us, he's for Rome, and that would polarize him against the common people, against the Pharisees and all those that despise paying taxes. But if he says, don't pay taxes... We're, we're Jews and we're our own people and I'm here to take, you know, take back authority from, from the Roman government. Then he's an insurrectionist and then he's opposing Rome. And remember, the Herodians are there asking the question. All they have to do is take word back to the Romans and now Jesus has gotten himself in trouble there and he's going to be arrested, and, which he's going to eventually be arrested and killed anyway. But they try to catch him in his words and <clears throat> they, they seem to, they're probably high-fiving each other like, yeah, we got him now. Oh, ye of little faith. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, they were faking it. They weren't really interested in taxes. Knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. Now, interesting that he didn't reach into his pocket and have one. He had, he had, to, borrow a, you know, he had to borrow a donkey. He had to borrow a denarius. He had to borrow a tomb. A denarius, by the way, is about one day's wage for a worker. About a day's pay. So he says, bring it to me that I may see it. And so they brought it to him. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So he's just meeting him right where he's just using common sense. Bring me the coin on the coin. And by the way, the word image is icon. Whose icon, whose image is on that coin? And the word icon is an interesting word, we know it as image or likeness, but it assumes a prototype. It's something that's made after the image of something else. Not only does it re resemble it, but it's derived from it. Okay? So that's the important thing about an image. Not, it's not just something that resembles something else, but it actually comes from that something else. So on that coin is a picture of Caesar Tiberius and an inscription on there. And so he... He minted it. He had these things minted and had his picture on it. And that showed ownership. So he asks again, whose image and inscription is on this? They said Caesar's. 
right on. Verse 17 says, Jesus answered to them, answered them and said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Very interesting answer. The first part of it, he says, okay, whose image is on it? Whose icon? Well, it's Caesar Tiberius. Well, and he uses the word render is different than the word they used when they said, hey, is it lawful to give taxes? He didn't say give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He said give back to Caesar. It's a word that means to pay a debt or to give something back to whom it belongs. So that makes a little bit of a difference as you read this. The word render says, hey, give back to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Money, whether it's American money or the denarius of Rome, it's got people's faces on it. Money is printed on the earth. It is earthly. It buys earthly things. Anything you can buy with money will stay on the earth. Money stays on the earth. The currency of heaven is blood not money. The Bible says you were not bought with gold, silver, precious stones, denarius, $5 bills, whatever. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the currency of heaven. So if we, we are on the, we're in this world, we have to always kind of hold these things in tension, don't we? We're in this world. We have to use the things of the world. We work, we earn money. We use that to buy things and we pay taxes. And he says, well, whose, whose image is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, then it belongs to Caesar, so give it back to him. Give him what he is due. And, but the more important thing, and the way he, he... Because creation, if you created it, you own it. Like, maybe you have, know someone who invented something. It's kind of cool. Uh, I, in the mail the other day, a couple weeks ago, we got these letters from, uh, from the government and they were uh, copyright letters. My son had written a couple of songs, and he had to get them copyrighted. And so we got the, co- the copyright information. Like, he owns these songs. He wrote them, and so he owns them. And so Caesar printed the money, printed these denarius, his images on it. He owns it. Give it back to him. But it paves the way. That truth, he establishes a truth that creation establishes ownership and authority. And then what's he, say, what's he say after that? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And this is the important part. He says, and give to God the things that are God's. And the point he's making is that your money, that's an earthly thing. That's used for earthly things. And Caesar's image on, is on it. But whose image are you created in? Who is God's? You're, you weren't just an accident. You're, you look the way you look because you are created in God's image. You are who you are. Because you were created in God's image. So give, give that back to Caesar. But the more important thing is give to God what belongs to him. What belongs to him? I do. If you've ever known someone, or maybe you were adopted, and I find just as, you know, this is an observation, you can agree or disagree with me on this, but it tends to be my observation that people that are adopted have this deep inner longing to know their biological parents. And they can go years and, and really uh, have sort of an, not an emptiness necessarily, but along a desire to know. Because I think that they have a desire to understand that they came from something outside of themselves. They're connected in some way to a family. They know that they look a certain way, not like, step, or not like uh, adoptive parents, but they look a certain way and they know that there's a reason that there's, they've come from somewhere. 
And I think that there's this, there's this longing inside to find those roots, to know about who I am and what I'm connected to, because it's about identity, isn't it? And, and I, this is my theory. This is my, my thought. I think in every human being, there is that same desire when it comes to God. To re- when it comes to your identity, when it comes to understanding how you fit in in the world, there is an unrest just like the unrest of a person that's been put up for adoption, adopted, and longs to find their, their true parents, I think every one of us deep inside has an unrest knowing that we fit in somewhere, knowing that there's something more, knowing that we should fit in somewhere into some bigger picture than what we've come to understand. And what you are looking for, what you're trying to find maybe in these other places, acceptance here, peers, friends, work, whatever it is, what you're truly looking for is, is God the Father, your Creator, your Maker, who both loved you, created you, and bought you. And you will never, you will never find rest for your soul. You will never, you will all, your whole life you'll be searching and looking, and what you're looking for is, why was I created? Who am I? And you're only ever going to find that truly in the, in the God in whose image you were made. In the beginning, God made them. In His image, He created them, male and female, created he them there's a story about a young guy a young child who uh, his dad gave him a a sort of a boat model kit when he was young and the kid just spent all this time building this model boat and put a lot of work into it made it really personal and went out he'd go out to sail it you know every day just sailing it on the little river near his house and this one day the wind was real strong and the current was real fast and he set that boat to sail and it got away from him and it got washed down, down river, and down river, a, gu- a guy uh, a couple miles away picks it up, takes it to a store, a pawn shop of some sort, and he, and he sells it, gets some money for it. It was a nice model ship. Well, a number of weeks later, the young boy and his dad are in town, and they see in the window of the pawn shop, they see the boat that he knew was his. So they go in, and they try to explain to the storekeeper that uh, this is actually my boat. I made it. And the storekeeper uh, didn't understand, couldn't, uh, didn't believe him. So he said, well, the only way I can give you the boat is if you buy it. And so they pulled out the money and they bought the boat that he had created. And, and he said, as he did that, just as I said a few minutes ago, first I made you and now I've bought you and now you're truly mine. And that is what is said of every Christian. And that's what Passion Week is all about. First I made you, but you got away. You turned away. You walked away. And now I've bought you with my own blood. And now you're mine. So that's uh, something to think about for sure. Give to God, or give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But hey, listen, your life, it's got the image of God on it. That ought to tell you who it belongs to. So that's the first question about taxes leads us to a wonderful truth. The second question is about resurrection. Uh, Now we meet another group, maybe you remember them, the Sadducees. They don't believe in spirits, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in resurrection or the afterlife. They're the materialists. They only believe in what they can measure or understand or touch or feel. A lot of people like that. A neat way to remember this is that's why they're sad, you see. They don't believe in an afterlife, they don't believe in angels. I didn't make that up, I just... This is a classy way to remember it, I guess, or maybe not so classy, I don't know. These were the, um, the religious aristocracy. These guys had money, they were connected to Rome. These would be the, 
the class of the high priests. The priestly class would have been of the Sadducean party. They didn't believe, they, they, they held in high esteem the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So notice, as Jesus answers their arguments, he will answer them from where? Their own, the books that they find authoritative, the first five books of the Bible. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So they start their hypothetical, ridiculous situation based on a truth from the Bible, a truth from the book of Deuteronomy 25 called Leveret Marriage. And it's just basically something that God had allowed and God had ordained so that if a, if a man and a woman get married and the man dies, she can no longer have kids. They can't have any kids, no one to take the inheritance. So according to God's law, the woman, the widow, would marry her dead, brother, or her dead husband's brother. The word levir means brother-in-law. And so that was the way they did it. And that would keep the inheritance in the family and would keep the name of the dead brother living through his children that would be had through his brother. So that's just, that's the principle. That's all you need to really know about that. You see that in the book of Ruth, by the way, Leveret marriage, a close relative, uh, redeeming the family. So this is what they base their thing on. And again, they think they've got Jesus. They have this great thing conjured up in their mind that to them seals the deal that there's no way resurrection is possible. And they have this great what if situation. He says, now, Jesus, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. So, again, they develop, beware of hypothetical situations. You get into conversations. People come to question you. You know, well, if Jesus is really God, you know, if this is really that, and you're just, you know, half the time, you go, ah, I don't don't know how to answer that. Did Adam have a belly button? I have no idea. Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? I don't know. People ask these crazy hypothetical questions, and I don't, I refuse to deal with people on hypotheticals. Give me something solid. But Jesus even, he, Jesus is able to do it. So they develop this whole thing, there's seven guys, and each of them dies, and pretty soon someone's got to start asking questions about this woman, who seems to be off in all these husbands here. And then she dies, and they make this assumption that, they make the assumption that life in heaven is just an extension of life on earth. That whatever happens on the earth then just continues on to happen into heaven. And so they say, well, if if there's this marriage thing on on earth and we have this allowance for people to, you know, marry and then if someone dies to get married and she marries these seven guys, well then in heaven when they get married, like whose husband is going to be hers? You know, which one of these guys is going to be her husband? And see, it's, it's ridiculous to think about that. See, so that's the loophole. There can't be a resurrection because seven guys in heaven can't marry this one woman. And that's their, their loophole. And I want you to also know this, that Jesus is about to give them an awesome answer. And here's an important thing for you to realize, is that just because you don't know the answer to a question doesn't mean there's no answer to the question. 
It's, it's human pride that says, well, if I don't understand it, then it, it can't be. If I don't have an answer, there must not be an answer. I've learned a long time ago that there's a lot of answers, and I just don't know them. That's why I have so much faith in God, because I realize my four-pound brain has a lot of limitations. And if you don't understand that, have your spouse tell you. Mine would be glad to tell you. My four, I can't remember all the passcodes and things I have to use for the Internet. But that's really important because you might, have think, you might think, well, I've really got God in this one. I've, really, I've got this question, and when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this question. Well, you might not get to heaven, first of all. And God's going to have no trouble answering your question. Just because you don't know the answer here doesn't mean there's not an answer. And I like this because Jesus gives, I would have never thought of this answer. Like, I would have never come up with this. If someone came and asked me this question, I don't know. But Jesus has an answer. And he said to them, are you not therefore mistaken because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God? And that's usually the two places where people get messed up when you don't know an answer. Mostly it's because you don't know the word of God. And I'll tell you, the body of Christ has a severe disability in its understanding of the word of God these days. And I'm so thankful for this church, for you guys wanting to go through the entire counsel of the Word of God. Because Jesus answers them from Exodus chapter 3. Part of the Torah, second book of the Bible. He could have probably answered them from a number of places, but he says, no, I'll find an answer right where you believe is authoritative. But he, you know, some people say, well, I don't need to read the Old Testament. There's a lot of important answers in the, in the, in the Old Testament. A lot of really important things. You err because you don't know God's Word. You can't get on in the Christian life. I mean, you need to become, to, to raise your family, to, to counsel your children, to counsel one another, to counsel yourself. What information are you going to use? I mean, who, is, who has the authority in the world for truth? If you don't know the Word of God, you walk in darkness, and you're going to get a lot of things wrong. And Jesus says, you guys are getting it wrong. If there's no resurrection, the Apostle Paul would say, then, then what we do here is a waste. They're questioning the resurrection. A lot of people today believe, well, I, I don't understand how a resurrection can happen. So I don't believe in it. You're just like the Sadducees. So this answer's for you. You err because you don't know God's word. And you minimize the power of God. In the last days, that's what, again, Paul told Timothy, there's going to be a form of godliness, but denying the power. Well, we're going to go to church, and we're going to do social activist things. We're going to be nice, and we're going to do nice things sometimes. But we don't really believe in a God who heals. We don't really believe in resurrection. And that's a denial. I mean, if, if God can take the dust of the earth, form it into the first man named Adam, and breathe life into his nostrils from nothing, I think resurrection ought to be a piece of cake. So if you believe in Genesis, you ought to believe in resurrection. Resurrection is easier. If you believe you're created by God, then, then resurrection is a piece of cake. So I'm not going to you know, argue all the arguments about resurrection. The point is, is that Jesus says to them, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he says to them, look, heaven 
It's not just a continuation of life on earth. Your mistake is thinking that, that's, that, that things are going to be in heaven like they are on earth. It's a different kind of life. Look, in heaven, Jesus is going to be the focus of all, for all of us. We're not, you, you think, you know, you're going to be concerned now. And I know kids ask the question, is my dog going to be in heaven? And I, know, I, I get that. I understand. But I think so many of the things that you're concerned with now, you just aren't going to be concerned with in heaven. We are going to be around the throne. The whole focus is going to be on Jesus. We're, we're going to have his life giving all of us life. I mean, it's, gonna, it's hard to imagine. I hate to limit it to just earthly existence, you know, a little bit better. And so he says that, that they, they don't, when, when they rise from the dead in the resurrection, there's, there's not marry, the people aren't getting married and, and giving in marriage. And, you, and some of you are like really bummed out about that because like you love your spouse and you're like, I want to be married to them in heaven. Some of you are really excited about that because you're like, I can't wait to get away from this guy. Well, there's marriage counseling for that. But in heaven, we're not going to be concerned with marriage as it is on earth. Now again, I say that and I want you to hear this. The Bible says that then we'll know just as we are known. I think that on earth marriage is the closest, most intimate relationship that we have. And we know that. But I think in heaven, every relationship is going to be more intimate even than that one. Because we're going to know more. There's, where this flesh is going to be gone. Sinfulness is going to be gone. Everything that kept people apart from each other, everything that caused division, everything that, all the veil that we wore while we were here, even the best of us still hide. And all of that is going to be stripped away and we're going to know each other. I'm not talking about sexual intimacy. I'm talking about personal, interpersonal intimacy uh, where your heart could just be exposed. You know, husbands and wives can get involved in sexual intimacy together much easier than they pray together. Have you noticed that? Praying is a very intimate thing. It involves bearing yourself, your soul, saying, here's what I'm afraid of. Here's what I'm worried about. Here's my weakness. I need prayer for this. Here's my struggle. And that's an intimate thing. I think in heaven, all that stripped away. Jesus right there, all of us. The, the, I, I think it's going to be even more, the whole thing, is going to be more intimate than the most intimate relationship on earth. But there's not going to be that marriage. And he says, but we're, instead we're like angels in heaven. The angels aren't getting married and having little angel babies, little cherubs with wings and sitting on the clouds. Those are not angel babies. And, and, and this, you know, I, because of my role as a pastor, uh, I'm involved with death a lot, funerals. And they're never easy. They're always hard. And I find that at funerals, um, because of grief and because of mourning, people are desperate for comfort. And I, and I totally understand that. But there is enough truth in God's Word to find comfort. It's hard because I find that people will comfort themselves with lies. And, and I know that people, you know, they don't want to li- live for the Lord at all while they're alive and they want to do their own thing. But at their funeral... No one wants to talk about the fact that maybe they didn't go to heaven. At a funeral, everybody's gone to heaven, even those that never wanted anything to do with God on the earth. And, and, I, and you know, I understand, I understand the, the feelings that are surrounded. But I say to you, get saved today. Give your life to Christ today so at your funeral, we're not wondering. And we're not having to comfort ourselves with lies about you. Here's what I know. I know God is love, and I know God is just. 
and I rely on those two things when I do a funeral. I don't say, because there's a lot of people that have probably fooled me. They're not going to heaven, but they sure look like it. And there's a lot of people that maybe we thought weren't that are. So I don't make those judgments. It's God's job to do that. But here's what I know. At any given time, God is love and he is just. He will do with the, the, wherever that person is, that's between them and God, and it will be right. So I just rest in that. I don't, there's a lot I don't know, but I trust in that. But here's one thing I do know. They're not our, our, our deceased friends, relatives, whoever it is. They don't become angels. That's not what this says. In the resurrection, you have a body. You have a resurrection body. It's connected to this body. You don't become angels. Because he says, they're neither married nor given in marriage, but are like, and the word is as, it's a comparison word, they're as angels in heaven. In what respect? In one respect, that they're not procreating. You're not having babies in heaven. And the, the number of angels is set. It's been the same throughout history. They're created beings. And in heaven, that's not happening yet. So I hope all that makes sense. Uh, I hope all that is, is reasonable to you. Verse 26 says, But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Well, that's such a simple answer. I mean, I could have read that passage a gazillion times and never understood it as an answer to the fact that there is resurrection. Because God didn't say to Moses at the burning bush, well, you know, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. What's he say? He says, I am. You can't say I am about people that are dead. You can only say I am their God about people that are still alive. And that's this point. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Again, just because you don't know the answer, just because you haven't found it yet, or may never find it, doesn't mean there's not an answer. So I, I pray that you have some academic and, and spiritual humility. And, and that, I think, helps to bolster your faith, because you go, you know what? Someone can come to you, and, and you know, kids that are going off to college, some of them already gone off, some of them going off back to college, some getting ready to go to college next semester. You're going to get a lot of questions. People are going to hound you with questions, and you may not know the answer. And, and you just have to say, you know, just because I don't know the answer doesn't mean the Bible's not true. Doesn't mean the things of God aren't true. So real important for me, uh, that's important. So finally, uh, verse 20, where are we, 28, the final a set of questionings here. Seems a little more genuine, this section. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? So, again, I think he seems to be somewhat genuine in his question. There were 613 commandments that have been counted up in, in their Old Testament. Uh, I think it's uh, 365 don't-do's, and 248 do's. And the question is, of all the do's and the don't do's, which are the primary ones? Which are the most important things? And you, you might expect them to have said, well, it's keeping the Sabbath. That's the most important thing. Or, you know, it's circumcision. That's got to be at the top of the list. Which is the, not which is the first in order, but which is the primary. 
And, and of what, ne- is it the negative ones? Are we, is it the negative ones we're supposed to avoid things? Is that the most important? Or is it the positive ones, the things we're supposed to do? And Jesus answered and said, the, the first of all the commandments is, and this is called the Shema, would be recited by the Jews morning and evening, because the word here is Shema in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is a, is a triunity. He's three persons, but he is one. And that's the word one that's used there. Not one as in singular, but one as in a oneness. The Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. So he doesn't say it's thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say circumcision. He says the primary commandment is love. Love God with all. It doesn't say some or part. This is the challenge, isn't it? What if I said to my wife, you know, I love you with some of my heart. I love you with some of my time. But I've got others, you know. I can't be limited to just one. I've got to spread myself around. You think she'd stand for that? You think your wife would stand for that? You think your husband would stand for that? It's an exclusive relationship. Marriage is the relationship on earth that most closely demonstrates and pictures the relationship between God and man. And it is an exclusive, committed relationship between you and him. Now, we live in this world. We act in this world. We do things in this world. But none of those things in this world are to have our hearts, our time, our energy, our thought life, our money, any of those things, more than our relationship with God. And, and so that's a good question for us because some of us are playing, we're playing fast and loose with God. I want to love God with a little bit of my heart. But when it comes time and you know, you know, you know who wins. What if I had two women in my life and, and I had to make a choice between the two of them? I had some, something I had to do. I had a date I was going to go on. I could only take one person and I had the two of them. I had to choose one. In choosing one, I choose against another. The one you choose is the one you love. So in your life, as you weigh out spiritual things and time and things like that, when you have these two things in, in tension with one another, when there's a, um, a, a, a I guess, a um, conflict between them, which one do you choose? That's the one you love. And God says the first commandment is to love all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. It is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Paul would say all of the commandments, every commandment, even if there was a commandment you didn't know, it would boil down to one word, and that's love. Paul would say you can, have, you can speak in tongues, you can, do, you, know, you can read your Bible every day, you can understand all the scriptures, and if you don't have love, it's nothing. And the second one's from Leviticus. I like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that commandment hinges on an understood thing, and that's that you love yourself. And I'll I'll tell you, 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 how many of you spent time doing your hair this morning? I'm not going to raise my hand. Doesn't take me long. How many of you, last time you were hungry, fed yourself? You did. You, you know, and if you were cold, you said, I've got to go get a jacket. Why? Because you love yourself, not in the sense, uh, the, the sense of this loving yourself is that you care for your needs. That's the sense of, of loving in the Bible, this agape love 
You know, the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his son so that the people wouldn't perish, but they'd have eternal life. The greatest need of humankind that God met on the cross with Christ that he gave his son for is the need for eternal life. God saw our greatest need and he met it. John says, how can you see your brother in need and shut up your heart from him? How does the love of God abide in you? So there is this connection between love, and this is the same thing. How do you love your enemy? If your enemy is hungry, the, the proverb said, give him something to drink. Or excuse me, blah. If he's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. If you see your enemy has a need, you demonstrate love to him or her by meeting that need as much as you're able. And that's the sense in which love it. So when it comes to yourself, you are more than happy to meet your own needs. And that's what so many people are into, is I'm into getting my needs met. You get into marriage. Why? Because I have needs, and I want my needs to get met in my marriage or in this relationship, in this boyfriend-girlfriend thing. It's a mess because you're trying to get your needs met. But the Bible says that's understood, and that's the design, that's the paradigm for you understanding what love is. The way you treat yourself, the things you do for you, you should do them for others. If, you're, if, you're, if someone else is hungry, you should feed them. Why? Because I'd feed me if I was hungry. And, and so on down the line. And love your neighbor. Those are the two greatest. It all boils down to love. Look, let, let's read on. We've we got to close up here. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but He. If there's only one God, you should love that one God with all your heart, all your mind, all your... You shouldn't have... There's not a million gods like in Hinduism. So that makes it easy for us, right? We only have one God to focus on. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's more than ritual. It's more than going through the motions. It's more than fasting because you're supposed to fast or praying because you're supposed to pray or doing these things because it's the ritual, it's the religion. He says, love goes beyond that. Love makes you do things for a different motive. And he realized that God's not about, you know, God doesn't just enjoy sacrifices, doesn't need food. What God desires is obedience. What God desires is the heart. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely, that he was thinking clearly that he was putting these things together in his head. And he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared to question him. I'll bet. He says to him, you're not far from the kingdom. Man, he could see this guy was putting it together like, oh, I'm getting it. Because the Pharisees were all about the rituals, going through the motions, but then were hateful to people. They were abusive to people. They were hurtful to people. They had no mercy, no, no love, no faith. It was all about a religious ritual. And that is the last thing I want to be part of. If, if, if Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, we can have a great building and we can have all the, 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 the accoutrements of, of worship and church life. But if we aren't loving our neighbors ourselves, the question would be, do we even love God? Because how do you tell God you love him? I mean, we can't see him. We love God. We can't see. And, and Jesus says these two, these two commandments, they are one and the same. To love your neighbor is to love God. And to love God is to love your neighbor. So if you love your neighbor, I mean, if you love God and hate your ex-husband or ex-wife or spouse or children or whatever, then the question is, do you really love God? 
That's what John says in, in 1 John. Now again, love isn't defined as an emotional feeling, and we've got to get past that. Because otherwise, this will, you'll be leaving here going, I'm so angry at that pastor because he said I'm supposed to love my ex-spouse. And they were really wicked and mean to me. And I, and I understand that. But if love means seeing a need in someone's life, knowing that I would want that need met in my life, and meeting it on their behalf, that's what love is. Love desires to protect. Love desires to, um, to help, to do good and kindness. So, lots to chew on, huh? Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what you're doing with this um, message in people's hearts. We've talked about so many important things uh, for people to know. I just pray, Lord, you use it. I pray for you to spark a, a, a revival of abandonment from the things of the world to the things of heaven. But I pray you would lead the way in my life and in others' lives here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing.